I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning, and that if you haven't turned there already, you'll turn to Matthew 13. I was informed graciously this week that some of the versions of the Bibles in the backs of the chairs do not necessarily have the same page number as all the rest of them. My only complaint is that I wish I knew that sooner because I would have stopped sharing the page numbers uh, with you. Actually, what I'd like to do this next coming week is probably just give you both versions. But the, the page number I have in front of me is 818. For some of you, that will be helpful. For others of you, it won't be helpful at all, and I'm sorry for that. But if you'd like to use one of the Bibles in the backs of the chairs, they are there to serve you, and you can turn in them to Matthew 13. Well, puns are one of my favorite ways to elicit an eye roll from somebody. I get them from my kids and other people's kids. I've really enjoyed doing it with the teens from time to time, but I'll get them from my wife as well. And uh, over the many years of uh, being close friends with Paul and Tara Hurst, Paul and I like to get eye rolls from our respective wives from our use of puns as well. A, A perhaps more sophisticated way of describing what's happening in the use of a pun is a play on words. It's essentially a turn of phrase in which the words uh, that are being used can be used or understood in multiple different ways and then put to use as such for either a pithy or humorous effect. And that's what I'm doing with this sermon title. Because what's happening in the next parable in Jesus' third major discourse is a short narrative, you might say a play, regarding weeds. And thus, my play on words, calling it a play on weeds. Now, before we get into this play, so to speak, a very brief one, let's look at the context again of of what we talked about already, but what is going on in this third major discourse of Jesus. We've got seven parables, and they don't all have the exact same immediate message, but they are connected to each other. Parables 2 and 7, having to do with the reality that God will judge between those who are His and those who reject Him. Parables 3 and 4, having to do with the kingdom of heaven spreading powerfully from small beginnings. And then parables 5 and 6, having to do with the kingdom of heaven's great value. With parable 1 being a kind of introduction to the discourse. And so this introductory parable describing the two responses, the bookend parable, number two, describing the results of the response, there are two of them, I should say, describing the results of the responses, and then two short parables about the power of the kingdom, two short parables about the value of the kingdom, and then that final bookend as well. And I think you can boil down the messages of these parables as parable one having to do with the fact that there are two different kinds of people or two different responses to the kingdom call of Jesus. Parable two, perhaps saying something like, your response is crucial regarding the fact that God will judge between them. The third parable, three and four, that the kingdom will spread powerfully. Parables five and six, that the kingdom is infinitely valuable. And then parable seven, again, sort of stating, your response is crucial. God will judge So that first parable being 3 through 9 and 18 through 23 in chapter 13, parable 2 being 24 through 30 and 36 through 43, as Norm just read for us, then 3 and 4 being in 31 through 33, 
then 5 and 6 being in 44 through 46, and then that last parable in 47 through 50. That's this third discourse filled with parables. And in this whole third discourse, Jesus is saying that his kingdom is something that you want to be part of, that you need to be part of, and that you are responsible yourself for how you respond to his call to be part of it. I believe understanding what Jesus is doing big picture here affects the way we read these parables individually because it's going to affect the way we understand them as a whole third discourse of Jesus. Today's passage is, of course, this second parable, and therefore it's the first of what I've been calling these bookend parables to the discourse that, that call people to understand that their response is crucial. And this parable is the first where we see in this third discourse a phrase, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. You see that in verse 24. Or in the rest of the parables that follow throughout the rest of the chapter, the simple phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. In using this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, or in our text for today, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, Jesus is cluing us into the fact that he is about to describe his kingdom or illustrate, color in, you might say, an image of what his kingdom is like. His kingdom being, of course, this new era that he was ushering in through his life and ministry, ultimately through his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And all throughout Matthew's gospel, we've already considered this together, having titled the series The Unexpected Kingdom, is this theme of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. What exactly is this kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God that Jesus is speaking of? In what sense is that kingdom already here? Because Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. And in what sense had it not yet arrived? Because we know that not everything has been put totally right yet. Well, Graham Goldsworthy says it this way. I put it on the screen for you. The New Testament has a great deal to say about the kingdom, but we may best understand this concept in terms of the relationship of rulers to subjects. That is, there is a king who rules, a people who are ruled, and a sphere where this rule is recognized as taking place. Put in another way, the kingdom of God involves God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's what Goldsworthy says. Here's what George Ladd said about it. The kingdom of God is the redemptive reign of God dynamically active to establish his rule among human beings and this kingdom which will appear as an apocalyptic act at the end of the age has already come into the blessings of God's reign. Your hardest Voss, another author, said that the kingdom of God is basically impossible to define since the Bible itself doesn't explicitly define it. And rather, Voss suggests some descriptions. He says it this way, the kingdom of God is a theocentric sphere in which God 
manifests or shows his supreme royal power in his kingdom of righteousness where all its blessings are gifts sovereignly and graciously bestowed by God. Now, I'm not a fraction of the scholar that either of these men are. Therefore, I can't come up with a superior definition or superior descriptions than these brothers already have. But I do think it's important for us to try to embrace or or get our arms around a kind of cohesive description or definition, you might say, even though Voss would say we can't really define it perfectly, as we seek to understand together what exactly it is that Jesus is describing when he says the kingdom of heaven is like. And what I'd like to suggest is that we think of it this way as we work through these parables, that the kingdom of heaven is God's reign through God's king in God's world. The reign of God through the king that he has appointed, of course being Jesus, in the world that he has created. I was talking with Brian about this this week, and he was expressing that it's important for us to remember that Matthew's gospel is a pre-Christian book in the sense that Christianity as a movement, which certainly theologically began during Jesus's ministry, but in terms of the stages of redemptive history, didn't really start until after Jesus rose and certainly ascended and when his followers began to spring up churches, as he called them to. So technically, you could say that Christianity as a movement didn't really start until the church at Antioch, which is in the book of Acts, where it is said that it is the first place that followers of Jesus were called Christians. But here's the point I think that Brian was making to me and that I'm making to you when saying that it's important to remember that Matthew's gospel is pre-Christian. Jesus' original listeners, when hearing these parables, did not have the dots connected in their minds when Jesus began describing the kingdom of heaven to them. What would these Jewish men and women gathered around him have been thinking of when he arrived on the scene and started claiming to be the instrument of ushering in God's kingdom. What would those Jewish people have been thinking of? Well, they would have at least thought of the prophecies foretelling a Davidic king coming to restore Israel to her place of prominence and blessing through God's justice and righteousness. And that's exactly why so many of the Jews wanted to kill Jesus by the time he was crucified. Because he declared the ushering in of God's kingdom and then didn't give them what they wanted. Turned out he, this lowly man from Nazareth, was that Davidic king. He wasn't riding on a white horse. He was not wielding a literal sword and he did not overthrow Rome. Rather, he rode in on a donkey. He wielded the sword of God's word and he overthrew sin and Satan. So when Jesus says in these parables, the kingdom of heaven is like, he's telling them that the kingdom of heaven is going to be like this. And it turns out it's not going to be exactly what they thought it would be. It was going to include in the first parable, the sowing of kingdom seeds that many would reject. It was going to include in a future parable, humble beginnings that appeared 
at first glance to be unimpressive and unimpactful. But it would only appear that way to those who didn't understand what God was really up to, which was dealing with sin, redeeming sinners back into a relationship with God, not merely physical healings, although it included those, and not merely national righteousness or even vengeance. And that's important for us to keep in mind. Jesus was saying, I'm ushering in God's reign in God's world. It's through me that the kingdom has come. I'm the one sent by God to initiate this new era, this new covenant. And so that's what this first bookend parable is describing along with the rest of these parables. God's reign through God's king in God's world. What it would be like. What characteristics it would include. And as I studied this passage, it occurred to me, to go along with this whole play theme, that there are four acts to this story, this play on weeds. That's where I got the whole idea of a play. The first three acts of this story move rather quickly. These parables are short stories, after all. And then the final act is where the meaning really comes out and where the meat of the message is. So let's look through this parable with that format of four acts in mind and start with act one. A sower, his seeds, and his field. Look at verse 24 again, which is where this uh, parable begins. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And you skip down to verses 37 through the beginning of 38. And Jesus says, after the disciples in a more intimate setting, rather than just the crowd who heard it, the disciples in this intimate saying or intimate setting say, explain to us the parable. And Jesus answers in verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And so here we have yet another farming theme in this parable. And the scene is pretty simple. A man sows good seeds in his field. Turns out, in Jesus' interpretation in verse 37, that the man, in verse 24, is him. He says that the man, the sower, is the son of man. And I'm not going to go into all of this now, but that title is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, and it is, it is one of the most commonly used ones in the gospel. So Jesus is saying that the sower in this story is him. And so we've got another image of a sower, but this one is not exactly the same as the parable of the sower as we know it. This sower is the main character in this story who is planting seeds in his field, which Jesus says in verse 38 is the world. Jesus also says in verse 38 that the seed, the good seed that the sower is planting, that he is planting is the sons of the kingdom in other words people who have been granted access into the family of god they are the sons of god they are members of the divine family so that's the picture we've got act one a sower his seeds in his field the parable is of the sower sowing good seeds in his field which is jesus sowing or planting sons into the world his kingdom people, his divine spiritual family being planted in his field or the world that he 
that God rules. Okay, that's act one. Act two is where a nefarious second character emerges. Act two, an enemy and his weeds. Verse 25 in the parable. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Now you go to verse 39, the beginning of it. Excuse me, the end of verse 38. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. This is like the part of the movie where the music changes. You know how that goes. You've got your protagonists, they're doing their thing, and then suddenly the film score composer shifts the music from this hopeful major chord usage, perhaps to a more dim and maybe minor feel. Maybe it even gets really quiet and suspenseful sounding. That's how Act 2 starts. While his men were sleeping, his enemy came. Now, we're not told by Jesus whether his men here were sleeping on the job or if it's just simply nighttime. But either way, there's a sneaky and nefarious plan that is sprung into action on the part of the sower's enemy. And what does this enemy do? He sows or plants weed seeds. I'm not talking marijuana here, although the, among the good seeds described as uh, in 25, these good seeds as wheat, he plants weed seeds among them and then sneaks back away. Now, interestingly, the Greek word used for weeds here is a word that means darnel, a spurious wheat plant found in Palestine, which resembles wheat, both in its stalk and its grain, but is worthless. In other words, it's a weed that looks like wheat. And this antagonistic Weed planting was actually a thing in Jesus' time. He was not describing something that the people would not have been able to identify with. Craig Blomberg, whom I've referenced before, notes that there are actually ancient accounts of what we might consider something akin to bioterrorism, where warring landowners might surreptitiously plant weeds in the field of his neighbor in order to choke out the crop of his competition. And so this hypothetical situation in Jesus' parable was actually quite relatable. And Jesus' explanation is this. The enemy is the devil. The weeds are his family, as opposed to the sons of the kingdom that are the good seeds. That's basically the situation. That's basically act two in this parabolic illustration from Jesus on what the kingdom of heaven is like. It can be compared, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to the world, the kingdom, being planted with kingdom people by the kingdom's king, Jesus, the sower, and then the enemy of the king, the devil, planting his own seeds, but they're not good seeds, they're his people, so to speak, not the king's people, as a sort of rival farmer. But remember, this is an illustration so I don't think we should take this parable as describing the world as a sort of chessboard with a mastermind on each side going head to head as if Satan is countering Jesus' every move with moves of his own person for person, literally. That's not literally happening. That's like what is happening. This is what the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. 
a field wherein both the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one live. Now here's the gist of Act 3. Oh, I forgot to give you this picture here. It's another one of these uh, charts to sort of explain it. The parable of the enemy and the weed seeds being Satan and Satan's family. Act 3, plants versus weeds. 26 says this, When the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Then you skip down to verse 38, and it says, The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Same thing. It's this revelation of what happens once those plants that were planted begin to bud. Now, have any of you ever played this game, Plants versus Zombies? I knew Simon was going to raise his hand. My kids have played it. I've played it before. For whatever reason, this image came to mind, and I thought maybe it would be illustrative for some of you. Plants that are springing up in a field that have enemies among them. Of course, it's not at all like Plants versus Zombies when you really think about it, but it is the illustration that came to mind. It's not harvest time yet because that's described as something that's going to take place later, but it's far enough along in the growth of these plants for grain to begin to develop and the nature of the weeds to begin to be revealed. That's what it says in verse 26. The plants came up and bore grain and the weeds appeared also. And in Jesus' explanation that these weeds are the sons of the devil, opposed to the sons of the kingdom, having been planted by their father, the devil, is something quite interesting. That Greek word, zizania, is a weed that looks like wheat. And so when it first starts to sprout, only a trained eye would be able to tell the difference. And remember, Jesus is illustrating what the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. So part of what he's saying is that the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the devil are sometimes hard to tell apart, at least at first. He's saying that they can be side by side in his field, in the world, the world that he rules over. They can be side by side at least for a time. And isn't that true? Since Christians, we are still sinners after conversion. And by that, I don't mean that we've not been transformed at all, but that we still sin sometimes. And since it's not uncommon for unbelievers to act in a Christ-like way, whether they mean to or not, sometimes it can be hard to tell the difference between a true Christian and a non-Christian in this world in the field of the sower and that's part of what's happening here both seeds were present both did their thing and since it is a wheat like kind of weed it's not noticed until a little later but it was noticed and that's act four a harvest conversation and then here's where we get to the heart of jesus's message let's read verses 27 through 30 Again, the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seeds in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. 
And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now look down at verse 39, second half of that verse. The harvest, in Jesus' explanation here, is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom, or this field, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Once the wheat and the weeds are both coming up, the sower's servants begin to notice. And verse 27 tells us that they go to their master and ask what the deal is. And at the beginning of verse 28, the master wisely ascertains what has happened. And then at the end of verse 28, the servants want to rectify the problem. They want to pull up the weeds. But interestingly, the master says, not just yet. He says to leave the weeds there and that they will be dealt with at harvest, at which point the weeds will be disposed of and all the wheat will be stored. And this is fascinating. There is so much to be said about this and only so much that we can say in one sermon. For Jesus to say this may have been confusing to Jesus' original listeners and perhaps to contemporary readers as well. Why would the master in Jesus' story instruct his workers to leave the weeds alone until harvest? Might not these weeds cause damage to his field? Jesus gives an explanation of why through the words of the master in response to the worker's request. The master says that he doesn't want to pull up the weeds yet because doing so might damage the wheat. The wheat might get pulled up alongside with it. And I assume you at least have some of a sense about how this works, whether or not you're a farmer. I'm not a farmer, but just last weekend, I believe it was, we're doing some weeding in our backyard area in a spot where my mom planted some flowers for us. That's an important note because neither Kate nor I are very good at gardening, and so it took my mom bringing flowers for there to be flowers in that spot. Anyway, as I was weeding around some of those flowers, I needed to make sure that I wasn't pulling up a flower, but that I was pulling up a weed. And that even when I was pulling up that weed, I did so deliberately so as not to disturb, at least not unnecessarily, the root system of the actual flowers in its vicinity. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about in this parable. The master says that he wants to wait until harvest because at harvest, the reapers will be instructed to distinguish between the plants worth harvesting and the weeds good only for burning. Wait until harvest, the master says. And we might say, along with his disciples, perhaps saying and thinking, why wait? Why not just get rid of those weeds right now so that the field can grow in a more healthy fashion. I'm convinced that this desire to wait until the harvest is not a throwaway line. And I think there's at least three reasons that the master is calling 
for his workers to wait until harvest. First of all, he's the harvester. Second of all, he cares about the wheat. And he also cares about the weeds. I want to work through those three backwards because I think number one is the most important one. And the third one is not explicitly in the text, but I think there's an implication for us there. In the story, the master of this field, uh, put it this way, a master of a field would not have cared at all about the well-being of the weeds. He's a businessman with a family to take care of, employees to pay. A maximum crop is his primary concern. But remember who the sower is in this parable in verse 37? It's the son of man. The sower in this parable is not an ordinary businessman. It's Jesus. It's the same Jesus who said at the end of chapter 11, which is ultimately just about a chapter ago, come to me all who are burdened and I will give you rest. That's part of why I say I think Jesus cares about the weeds. Think of it this way. 1 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. This is talking about him judging sin, coming, returning to care for his people. He's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus cares about the weeds. In fact, Augustine, the fourth century church father, said about this, passage in relation to this passage and perhaps the uh, some of the reasoning here those who are weeds today might become wheat tomorrow now i cannot be sure and so i don't want to argue too hard about how much jesus was thinking this way in verse 29 after all the the core reason he gave was the well-being of the wheat don't pull up the weeds because it might damage the wheat so that's got to be at the heart of his concern but i just can't help but think about the compassionate grace of jesus even to weeds the sons of the evil one so that's the third reason the one i'm doing first here but then secondly, as the text indicates, the master's immediate concern is the well-being of the wheat. In other words, this master is a wise farmer, aware that a premature harvest could actually bring damage to his wheat. Now, Jesus doesn't give us an explanation uh, regarding how the wheat might be damaged through the pulling of the weeds. So I don't think we should over-spiritualize this message here, such as taking it to something like God is waiting to judge the unrepentant sinners so that the Christians can learn from the trials and tribulations that come through living among metaphorical weeds around us. That's certainly a potential application. That is something we should think about and consider what it means to live in this stage of kingdom life. But that's not immediately found in the text. I think it's just as simple as this. The first reason, he's the harvester. And he knows what's best. His servants serve his bidding. They follow his timetable, not vice versa. The workers of the farmer want to act quickly, get rid of the weeds ASAP so it can just be all wheat. But the master knows that the best way to take care of this problem in his situation is to let it all grow out. And then it will be abundantly clear which is which on the day of harvest because if left to the workers perhaps they would wind up damaging true wheat 
in the interest of pulling up weeds. And that wouldn't be good. I think we can relate to that. We who may think we know best wanting to address a weed and pronounce judgment upon them, perhaps prematurely. He's the Lord of the harvest. He knows what's best regarding when and how to pull and dispose of weeds. I still think it's hard, though, not to cringe a little at what's clearly being said here. Jesus is saying that as his kingdom advances, he is going to let evil reside alongside good for an extended period of time until judgment day. And that can be frustrating for Christians because our nature being made in the image of God cares very much about justice and we should and we want to see the wicked weeded out so to speak much like many of our psalms righteously indicate psalm 7 9 oh let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish righteous the righteous psalm 10 15 break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer call his wickedness to account psalm 17 3 arise O lord confront the wicked subdue him deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword We want to see the wicked weeded out. And that's not all bad in terms of that desire. It can be kind of frustrating, therefore, for us to see that the plan of the master is actually to leave the weeds in place until Judgment Day. You know, some Christians over the many centuries have sought to take this kind of justice into their own hands in some horrible and sinful ways seeking to force conversions, which doesn't really mean a conversion at all, seeking to threaten death for those who do not merely profess Christ, even taking lives from people in the name of advancing the kingdom. This is evil. I actually had the occasion to speak with a man who had actually done this once. He was in jail. He had compelled conversion, and they refused, and he killed them. The point that Jesus is making by recording this harvest conversation between the workers and the master is ultimately, though, one of encouragement, I think. I think this is the larger point of this whole third discourse, and it's going to become clearer as we go. It's part of why some authors or commentators and even preachers try to take as big of a chunk as possible so that you can get the whole thing. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to, means that Jesus is describing what life in the kingdom is like, and what it's like is this reality that there exists in the kingdom simultaneously wheat and weeds side by side. Sons of the kingdom and sons of the evil one. But lest those sons of the kingdom get discouraged and have this desire to pull the weeds right away prematurely, the king says... The harvest is coming. The weeds will be taken care of then. And you will be stored, so to speak, as grain forever. You see, this parable is telling Jesus' disciples in part that, this is important, that despite the presence of significant opposition 
and challenges of various kinds that the presence of the weeds, or we might say unbelievers, would bring. The seeds of the sower will ultimately and eternally prevail. Now this use of the image of harvest to refer to the day of judgment is quite picturesque. The storing of good grain like a farmer does and like the Lord will do with his children for all eternity in his dwelling place. But the harvest also includes the disposal of the weeds, which Jesus is saying he will do with all who ultimately reject him. It's also kind of an interesting thing because the disciples would have connected this harvest language with their own contemporary teachings. This language was consistent with current day, their, their day, rabbinic, parabolic teaching, speaking of harvest in terms of judgment day. That's just interesting. This wasn't novel language to Jesus. It's because I think it's an apt picture. It's also kind of a scary one. And this is not the first time in the book of Matthew that Jesus refers directly to what Christians call hell. But it is the first instance in Matthew's gospel that so poignantly and explicitly described as the destination of all who do not turn and embrace Jesus. Jesus has clearly said that the weeds are the sons of the devil as opposed to the sons of the kingdom, and he says that the weeds will be burned in the parable. And then in verses 40 through 42, he says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned, so it will be at the end of the age when the angels gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a tragic and horrifying picture. I'm glad I'm not alone and that the late R.C. Sproul once said that the doctrine that was hardest for him was the doctrine of hell. I will not do a full treatment on it here. Might not be the place or time for it anyway. But we have to at least take these scriptures at face value and let them say what they say. Jesus' mention of this place with, a, with weeping and gnashing of teeth is not part of the parable. It's part of his explanation. So we can't take this as parabolic. It's his explanation of what the furnace where the weeds go is like this place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the text is saying that those who ultimately are not the sons of the kingdom, who do not respond to the call of the king to repent and believe and be entering into his kingdom, will wind up there. Hell is not a subject that we harp on here at Redeemer. It's really hard stuff. But do you know who it was that spoke of hell the most in the Bible? It was Jesus. And as a preacher of his gospel, I'm compelled to acknowledge it. And along with acknowledging it, pleading with any of you who think you can make it to judgment day and be just fine without trusting Jesus to reconsider. It is a harsh reality as the destiny of those who come to judgment day having never trusted in Jesus as Savior, having never repented of sin and embraced Him by faith. This blazing furnace, to use the words 
in his parable here or in, in his explanation here where the soundtrack is the sounds of weeping. Friends, don't take it lightly. But even as it is a scary and harsh reality and one that requires discussion at times to really wrap our minds around all the whys and hows of, of hell, this parable, as I've said already, I think is designed to also bring comfort to his disciples. Remember, he's explaining this parable to his disciples. But consider with me this, as disciples of Jesus, I do not know the hearts of everyone in this room. I do not assume that everybody in this room has trusted in Christ, but I, I think I'm probably safe in assuming that at least most of us are followers of Jesus. And so let me ask you, whoever you are, this when it comes to why hell could possibly be a good thing. What kind of a God would God be if he never punished sin? He'd be an unjust God. That's who he'd be. I think I mentioned this recently that I've started listening to this podcast called Questioning Christianity. I listened to the first two episodes. Dr. Tim Keller's doing some Q&A stuff. Of course, he's with the Lord now. This was years ago. And I can't speak for the rest of the series, but the first two episodes were, were edifying for my soul. And the second episode contained a question and answer in which the topic of people deserving to go to hell or not came up. And this was a room filled with unbelievers in New York City asking Tim Keller questions. And part of how Keller responded was to say that he has found in his experience talking to unbelievers and believers alike that it's not that nobody wants hell for anyone. It's that they don't want hell for themselves and certainly not for other people that they love. In other words, he says, you start asking people whether or not they think Hitler should be in hell, and they go, well, I suppose. They'll probably tell you that they hope he's there if it exists. So I think part of what Keller is saying is if you ask someone if their sweet little old lady next door deserves to go to hell, they'll say, Probably not, but if you ask him if some KKK member or Osama bin Laden or somebody that you think is deeply evil deserves it, then they're usually fine with it because of this indwelt sense of justice. And that's where the end of this parable and its explanation comes in. It's ultimately meant to comfort the people of God because it means that one day, all who oppose the kingdom will be dealt with. But all who turn from their sin and to Jesus in faith will spend eternity with him instead of facing the punishment they deserve. That's what verse 43 is all about. All who respond to the kingdom call of Jesus, who are made righteous, who are his people, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. There's great hope for all who come to Jesus. In other words, those people who Jesus referred to in Matthew 5 as the light of the world in their time on this earth will graduate, you might say, to this consummation of an eternal, blissful radiance of the image of Christ forever in his presence. That is the hope of the people of God 
in the kingdom of God. And as I said earlier, just a few minutes ago, there is so much to say and to think about in this passage and more than one sermon can address. And so I heartily invite all of us to continue to meditate on this parable and its implication for our lives and even to gather in our fellowship groups this week, if you can, one on Tuesday night, one on Wednesday night, to discuss our application questions that we'll look at together. I have them on the screen here, but you have them on your worship guide as well. You don't have to write that all down. Questions like, what should Christians think about the remaining presence of the weeds in our world today? Or how a proper understanding of hell should shape our view of God's holiness, our sinfulness, and the glory of the gospel. And then discussing and thinking about why this parable was important for the people around Jesus at that time and why it's important for us now. I think one of the implications of these questions has got to be, though, brothers and sisters, our what it means for our pursuit of evangelism. And we're going to continue to think about that as we progress through these parables. There'll be a little bit more about that. We don't have time to get into now or turn it into a sermon on evangelism next. But I would encourage you strongly to consider, as we already have in the previous parable, what this means for our pursuit of the lost. Compassion for them, commitment to this kingdom call. But for now, I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to take a few minutes to continue in prayer quietly and meditation as well. And then we're going to conclude with a song that expresses our desire to see the kingdom of God spread, to see more and more people be turned, as it were, from weeds to wheat. So let's pray and then meditate quietly and then sing. Father in heaven, please use your word in our hearts and lives, even difficult and even at times cringe-inducing passages that include the harsh realities of what is in store for those who never turn to you in faith and repentance. Please help us as your kingdom people to want to see weeds turned to wheat and to want to see your justice prevail in your timing. I pray that you would encourage our hearts as well as we live among the weeds, as it were, as we live in a world where both good and evil live next to each other, where the kingdom is present, but it has not been fully consummated yet, that we would be encouraged to know that judgment day is coming and those of us who trust in Jesus will shine like the sun in his presence forever. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.